All right, good morning, family. Happy daylight saving. (laughs) All right, so proud of all of you for being here. Um, So if you're new to us, my name is Ebony. Uh, My husband, Tom, is the lead pastor here at Restored Temecula. Uh, He, Herrick, and Jason are currently, as Mark had already shared, in South Africa. They're actually ministering to a couple churches that we love and partner with there. Um, Them being there, their time away there, is a huge part of our heart as a church, which is seeing God as Father of all nations, and um, also remembering that we're not limited to an American story, that we're actually a part of a much larger global story. Um, Also, one of our values here at Restored is one of multiplication, so we are the fourth church plant out of the Restored family of churches in the last seven years. Excited to celebrate our one year coming up. Um, Brad and his wife, Sarah, were so fundamental in the starting and building of the first Restored Church in San Diego. They are faithfully now serving at our third church plant, which is up in the L.A. area. Um, One quick story I want to share about Restored L.A. is when we just started our evening gatherings um, on Sunday evenings, Back then, there were, there were the other churches, so San Diego, South Bay, and L.A. They all rallied around together to coordinate volunteers, to carpool, and to come every evening, like Temecula, all the way down here, the drive, to serve the kiddos, to love and care for the kiddos, and to serve the parents, of course, in that. Um, so the drive, I mean, at least an hour for each one, L.A. being the farthest, had the most volunteers that, like, filled that up. And it was just so incredible to see that. And the sacrifice, but the best part is it, it wasn't really a sacrifice. And just you could see their hearts. They were so joyful to be there and to serve. And it was just kind of a really special picture of really just God's heart. And um, so we want to thank you guys for that. I'll never forget that. That was just... The coolest part. Also, I want to remind you guys that Brad is not a guest speaker. He is a dear brother to us all. He is fiercely passionate about Jesus, which you'll get to see. And also, he's a library of biblical knowledge. Um, Truly, it's incredible. This man can read. Um, Seeing it's a privilege to hear um, him teach truly is an understatement. I... I really am just overjoyed that you guys get to hear and see more of my brother. And so I just want to take this time for us to honor him for the gift that he is to us, not only this morning, but also for the past years that have informed us as a church today. So, ladies and gentlemen, Brad Syrian. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Um, it is amazing to be here. Uh, it is such a privilege, and I am I'm jealous of your leaders uh, here as a community. Um, I love deeply um, your pastors and pastors' wives and leadership team, and, and you are well taken care of. Uh, I really, really mean that. And um, Tom and I, yeah, I mean, I met the Logues, yeah, I think seven, six years ago, whatever it was, Tom, one of the first times he connected with Andy, who preached here last week, um, they connected, and we had a good, like, lunch and a couple meetings beforehand, but the first time I ever, like, ministered, if you will, with Tom, I preached, it was, like, first launch service in San Diego, um, I guess pre-launch days, and I preached a pretty mediocre sermon, and Tom, he was leading the music and worship, and he gets up there, and he just starts strumming, he goes, you know, the Lord gave me this picture as I was standing here, and there's a couple here who, husband who was looking at porn on the way here, and uh, they got into a huge argument, and uh, they said, she's, the wife said this, and if that's you, uh, Brad's going to be right there and praying for you. Now, there, there was about 20 people in the room, so I mean, you say that to a room of like 10,000, probably someone's going to get up there, um, but there's about 20 people in the room, and I'm like, who is this guy? And I, I stand over there, I mean, awkwardly, like right there. And immediately a couple comes up to me just sobbing. I was like, 
I'll do ministry with this dude forever uh, if this is how it's going to go down. I just preach a, a, a mediocre sermon and this guy reads people's mail like this. Um, it, was, it was just amazing. So um, I am just deeply, deeply grateful for the Logs um, and the Burgas and, and, and all of you guys. And so, uh, yeah, it is one year. You guys, you're celebrating a year. It's, it is exciting. We're coming up on our third year uh, in a couple weeks. So, yeah. We're beyond the toddler stage-ish. Uh, we're still awkward and figuring life out, but um, we are, yeah, excited, excited. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in together. <clears throat> uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us so deeply. Um, yeah, thank you for this church family that you are forming, that you love. Jesus, I ask that you would help us uh, this morning just to see you more clearly, to enjoy you more fully, um, and to love others uh, more deeply. Please, 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 Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see and hear the things that you have for us. We love you. That's in your beautiful name. Amen. Um, yeah, so a few weeks ago when Tom texted me, he said, hey, could you chat around um, the idea of the church being a family? Um, something along those lines of a church being a healthy family. We do, if you're new to Restored, we talk about the church being a family often. Um, you'll get tired of it, I'm sure, and then you'll get excited about it and then tired of it and then, I don't know. But um, even I get jaded by, it's like, okay, we get it, you know, it's family time, okay, there's family announcements, a fam, 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 family, family. But um, the reason we have to talk about this so often is because it's so counter to the American church uh, in so many ways, that, that the American churches generally see the church as a business, maybe an event, uh, but rarely a family, and yet the New Testament, when it talks about the church, it is a family. So we, we, we've got to understand this well, and, and what I want to talk around is the idea that in order to be a healthy family, we actually have to take responsibility for one another. Um, You can't just be focused on you being a healthy family member by yourself. Uh, If you try to do family that way, it's not going to work. You might be a healthy family member, but in order to have a healthy family, every member needs to be healthy. Everyone needs to be responsible for one another, and that means taking big sacrifices for one another. It means actually seeing others, as, um, as Philippians 2 would say, as, as more important than ourselves. I was on a, a bachelor party weekend about seven years ago. Uh, don't worry, it wasn't crazy. Uh, it was for some people, not me. Um, and and I was, we were on the lake, and we were kind of hanging out in Arizona or something, um, and just kind of <clears throat> on the water. And one of the guys, who I, I didn't know too, I knew the groom really well, um, the groom-to-be, but I didn't know the other guys a part of the party. <clears throat> and they were all pretty a close group of friends. And one of the guys, he's about to jump into the water, he takes his shirt off, and the guys just start laughing. They're like, dude, that tattoo. Um, and he's like, stop, you guys stop, just stop. You know, um, like, and, and I'm like, what's going on? And, and he turns over, and um, just, I'm, I'm cool with tattoos, but like, it was the worst looking tattoo I've ever seen in my entire life. And it just said, my brother's keeper on the back, like, kind of like a seven-year-old would write. Um, just like crooked, not just looks real, real rough. And, um, you know, he's obviously very self-conscious about his bad tattoo that he got. And um, he's like, guys, just stop, stop. And they're like, tell Brad the story, tell Brad the story. I was like, what's the story? Uh, He's like, okay. Um, He's like, I have a twin brother and my twin brother and I, we talked for, you know, when we were young, we were going to get tattoos on our 18th birthday uh, and just say like my brother's keeper. And so 18, turn 18, we go to the tattoo parlor, and we decide rock, paper, scissor, who goes first, and I went first, and as soon as my tattoo got finished, my twin brother looked at it and was like, I ain't doing that, and walked out. <laughs> so, so there's one twin with a tattoo of my, I am my brother's keeper, and the other one's like, not much. No, that's, I'm, not, I'm not ruining my back like that. So um, we, what we need to dive into today is to actually understand that we are our brother's keeper. We are our brothers and sisters keeper as a family, even if it's awkward and ugly and messy. um, We actually have to step into that mess and not view church as just something about me. And this is why podcasts actually don't help us all the time. I love podcasts. I love reading. um, But it can become very much an individualistic pursuit when in the New Testament, it's the you 
oftentimes is a plural you. It's to the church as a community, not you as in me sitting in my car listening to a podcast. So if you've got your Bible, let's go. We're going to just look at James chapter 5. It's only two verses. It's going to be one sentence. So uh, we are going to kind of dig deep into it. But it is a, a very, very important and crucial reality for us as, as a church. I did bring my friends Jill and Paolo with me today. Um, <clears throat> I love them deeply. Both of them got saved in our church when we planted. Um, did, was Tom preaching the day you got saved? Yeah. So Tom was preaching up with us two and a half, three years, two and a half years ago when Jill got saved. Um, and then Paolo got saved a little after that. Um, and yeah, just they both now lead gospel communities. They are some of the most healthy, mature leaders in our church. Uh, and and it, it doesn't take long. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like 30 years of leadership and you know, maturity. Like God does incredible things. And I was just grateful. I texted them and said, hey, you want to roll with me? And they're like, yeah. Because we have two kids, my wife and I. And with the time change, I was like, not going to go well. So... Um, <laughs> Grateful for friends. So, um, James chapter 5, uh, a lot of James, we, we preached through James uh, as a church a few months ago, and James 5, the last two verses, James, kind of, you, you can see a lot of James individualistically, this is about me and my faith and my works and all these things, um, but he ends with one sentence that's going to kind of let you zoom out from this individualistic, um, just inward focus and go, us. Actually, this faith thing is about us. So, let's read together. James five nineteen to 20. My brothers, you can add my sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There is the reading for the day. Um, short, it's, it's weighty. There's a, there's a lot, I mean, it fits on one screen. Um, there's a lot here and it's very simple though. This is what I love. There are some Sundays when I'm, I'm getting ready to prep and preach and I've got to go through like eight commentaries. I'm like, what is this actually saying? The Bible can be confusing at times. Let's all acknowledge that. Uh, if you read the Bible, honestly, you'll have to put question marks in the margins at times. It's like, didn't get that. Um, this is one of those, you're like, Okay, like someone's wandering from the truth, someone should bring them back, and then if you do, that's awesome, right? It's like, cool. Like, like, it's not like, what's the Greek say here? It's like, well, it's just like, it's really simple, it's really important, um, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but this is what it's saying. It's saying, hey, if someone begins wandering from the truth, you should try to bring them back, restore, right? Restore literally means to bring them back, it's a great name for a church, Bring them back to, to the truth of Jesus, and then you've saved them from a multitude of sins. You've, you've helped them. You, an eternal reward is here. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's going to save them, their soul from death. Like, cool, great. So, um, and this is a, a repeated theme over and over and over throughout the scriptures. This is not like a one-time thing. Um, I think this is one of the most repeated themes throughout all the scriptures about what the New Testament church should be doing. It's actually this idea that we are responsible for each other. Uh, Matthew 18 talks about this. Uh, We see this throughout Philippians 4 when Paul's actually telling the church, hey, these two gals were gossiping and they were having an issue in the church. Help them. Let them reconcile. It's your job, church. He he doesn't say let them figure it out on their own. He says it's your job to help um, them get together again. Hebrews 3, Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. Um, this is a very, very crucial piece. So um, here's the, 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 the temptation, though. For, for a text like this, you've got clearly this wanderer, and then you, you have this other who's a restorer. And I think there's this temptation, at least in my heart, and maybe in yours, to kind of go, let's, let's split the room, right? Like if you're the shady wanderers, come on this side, and if you're the mature restorers, come on this side, right? Let's just do that. We can, like, talk, we can match everybody up. You know, like, take a number, they'll get you in case you wander. Um, I don't think the text lets us do that. Uh, I, think, I think what the text has us do this morning is say that there is nobody above wandering, and there's nobody below restoring. There, there, there's nobody above wandering, and there's nobody below restoring. If you're a Christian here today, 
you have a responsibility. And if you're a Christian here today, there is potential of wandering in your heart. Because it says anyone. Right? So, so all I want to do is just spend uh, our time together asking some questions of the text, asking some questions of our own hearts, and helping us grow together. Um, so I'm going to kind of talk at first, asking some big questions to the wanderer, the potential wanderer in us all, and then some questions to, to the, the restorer in us all. And I hope, if you're not a Christian here today, that you'll actually get a clearer picture of what Jesus is all about and what is community is supposed to look like. So the first question for the potential wanderer in us all is this. Do you know that you are prone to wander? Do you know that you are prone to wander? My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders, he doesn't say like, hey, if the heretics wander, if the false teachers wander, if the new believers wander, if that shady guy wanders again. Doesn't say it. Anyone. Do you know that there is potential of wandering in your own heart? Maybe you're like, no, 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 not me. Read the New Testament. One of the most terrifying people in the entire New Testament is Judas. One of Jesus' 12 disciples. I think we've kind of given him a bad rap, especially if you grew up in the church. Like, if you grew up in the church, when you think of the word Judas, you kind of see, like, Jafar from Aladdin. He's, like, he's kind of that creepy guy, like, holding, like, a snake. And he's just always got that weird look on his face. You're like, that guy looks like trouble, right? Read the, read the Gospels. Friends, he's casting out demons with the twelve. He's prophesying with the twelve. He's praying and preaching the gospel with the twelve. On the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, the other disciples don't go, Judas! No, duh. Look, he's got red eyes. (laughs) Friends, what do they do? Is it I? Is it, is it me? They, they don't think it's Judas. They're confused. Even when Jesus goes, no, the one who dips the bread is the one. And Judas leaves and they're like, where's Judas going? Friends, do you know that this is in potential in your heart? And you might go, well, he wasn't saved. He was predestined from the beginning. Sure. What about Peter? Peter, Pentecost, right? He had issues clearly in the gospel accounts. We get that. But then he's, then he's filled with the Spirit, Acts 2, Pentecost. He preaches a sermon where 3,000 people get saved. I want that on my spiritual resume. <laughs> he's got it. He is leading the church in Jerusalem, and yet in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul has to confront him to his face because his conduct is not in step with the gospel because he's begun to separate himself from the Gentiles and only eat with the Jews of prominence. And Paul goes, you stand condemned, Peter. Guys, if Peter wandered, who are you? Who am I? To think that there isn't this potential in my heart to wander away from the truth of Jesus. The safest people are those who are most aware of their potential wandering. Pride will kill you. The one of you who's most offended at the idea that you might wander, you're in the most dangerous position of us all. Do you know that there is this potential of wandering? See, no one stumbles into godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, train yourselves into godliness. Hebrews 2.1 says, pay careful attention to what I'm saying, lest you drift away. The human heart is drifting. The human heart needs to train for godliness. No one wakes up fluent in a foreign language. No one wakes up with a six-pack. Goes, whoa! Doesn't happen. You have to train yourselves. Our, Our default is drifting. We need to be training ourselves to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus or else we will be wandering. Second question is this. Do you know how and where you are prone to wander? 
Do you know how and where you are prone to wander? Knowing our weaknesses and confessing them helps break the power of this potential wandering. We have to know the depths of our hearts, that they're prone to wander, and then go, okay, what would it look like for me to wander? Uh, This is one of the best exercises you can do later on tonight, is to write down, if I wandered away from Jesus, what would it look like? For for some of you, it's not going to be heroin tomorrow, right? For those of you, you're like, it's been a struggle in the past, so that might be it. What is it? look like for you. The more you are aware of your future wandering, your potential wandering, the better you can safeguard your heart now. My kids, I've got a boy, Micah, he's six, and my gal is four, Emma, and they are not the greatest listeners at all times, but in parking lots, they crush it. They, they parent us oftentimes. We'll get out of the car and we'll just start walking, like, Dad, oh, it's a parking lot. Like, they're like, someone's going to hold our hands. I'm like, sorry, dude. Like, I, you know, you're six. I thought you could just like walk with daddy now, but you're right. Hold daddy's hand. He is aware that a car is much bigger than him. And he is aware of his weaknesses in a parking lot. He is aware of his vulnerabilities in a parking lot. So much so that he does not move. He touches the car until he's holding one of our hands. So he's very safe. He's probably safer in parking lots than he is in our front yard where he's very comfortable. See, it's when we know where our weaknesses are, where our vulnerabilities are, that we can actually become safe as opposed to blind and pretend, no, no, not me. It would never happen to me. So what is it for you? Is it a love of money? Maybe it would be just a, a little drifting as I keep my eye on that dollar, on that raise, on that promotion, on that bigger thing, whatever it is, and my eyes are fixed on this rather than Jesus. Maybe it's a romantic relationship for you. Maybe it's that constant needing of that guy or that gal who clearly isn't focused on Jesus, but you want their approval and desire and affection more than Jesus, knowing that in your own heart. Maybe it's just pride and arrogance. Maybe you look at everybody else and you are the standard of perfection and everyone else falls far below the line for you and your drifting feels very good, very right and true theologically or whatever it is, but it's self-righteousness that is a drifting for you. Whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's doubting intellectually, what, what, what is it for you? It's, it's good for you to know your temptations and your leanings and your wanderings so that you can confess them and bring them into the light. I, I'm, I'm pretty aware of mine. I'm sure there's some blind spots I have. That's why I have friends that help me in that. But one of my things, one of my struggles in in that exercise of how would it go down for me if if I ever wandered away from the truth, what would it look like? When I sat down and did that exercise a few years ago, I realized that it would probably be through building up a reputation and a ministry around my own name rather than the name of Jesus, which is terrifying. But I'd begin preaching and writing books and blogging and all these things. And all of a sudden, Brad Sarian's off by himself and Jesus is over there. So I I have to know that. I have to know that temptation. I have to know that, that when I'm preaching, it's actually a dangerous battlefield that I'm in. This is not just like holy ground that everything is always sinless and perfect for me. It's a battle of my heart making sure that I'm glorifying Jesus rather than myself. And, and how do I do that? How do I discipline myself to stay in that place? Confession. Because even as I just confessed that to you, a lot of my glory just diminished. A lot of you guys are like, oh, that guy's kind of weird. <laughs> I have to do that. I could pretend. I could pretend it's not a struggle of mine. Just get up here and be like, let's preach. And, and some of you guys be like, wow. But the moment I go, I've got issues, I want you to be wowed by me. You're like, man, not as impressive anymore. <laughs> kind of gross. I have to do that for my own sake so that I don't drift away and begin to believe the applause that's in vain rather than the love and acceptance that Jesus alone can give and satisfy me with. Third question is, do you know that your wandering is deadly? Let him know that what whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. 
How light do we often take sin? Oh, it's just a season. Oh, it's just this little thing I'm going through. It's not a big deal. No, James goes, oh, it'll kill you. We're not playing games. This this struggle, this wandering is actually going to lead you to death. Don't take it lightly. We were in one of our gospel communities. Um, I don't lead it anymore with my wife, which has been a nice little break for us. But we're in it. It's at our house. And I do my best. I'm in this real weird, awkward season right now where I'm like the lead pastor of the church. And I'm in a gospel community. I'm not leading it. So I try to shut my mouth and not talk a lot. Um, and I just sit there, and <clears throat> it was a few months ago, and some, some guy shared some sin, which we're like, man, we're an authentic community. It is a safe place to not be okay, uh, and this guy in the big group kind of shared some sin he's struggling with, and the gal next to him goes, I totally get you, and fist bumps him, and I was like, ha, <laughs> like, I, I, I jumped in. I was like, hey, <laughs> I love you guys, I love us. I love Jesus' grace. Man, I preach grace wildly. We don't fist bump sin. We mourn sin together. We hate sin together. We relate. We, we, we empathize with sin. We don't, we don't self-righteously judge sin, but we don't laugh and mock sin fist bump it. Not, we don't mock fist bump death. Hey, I'm almost about to die, guys. I totally get you. We don't, we don't do that with sin. It's weighty. It's serious. It will kill us. Let us understand that our wandering is deadly. Fourth, have you given anyone in this community, in this church, permission to confront you? It's easy to show up on Sundays. Like, just to sit there. It's, it's pretty easy. Even though, I mean, it's kind of scary for some of you, but it's pretty easy. The goal isn't just to sit here on Sundays. The goal is to love Jesus, love people, and to do that together in a healthy community. Friends, does anyone in your life have a license to hunt your sin? Have you given that to someone? Have you sat a close friend down and gone, I'm an open book to you. You don't need to be an open book to everyone. In fact, I highly encourage you don't be, so you can have some friends. But... Do you have one or two? Specifically in this church, that was awesome. (laughs) Specifically in this church family. Who goes, I know you and I'm not afraid to confront you because you've given me permission. You've got to give permission to people. It is so hard to call people out on stuff. But the moment someone gives you that card and goes, if you see me wandering, you see me straying, here's the card, you get to call me out on it. You need to give that card to somebody. I have friends, Tom and Andy. They, they are guys that I trust deeply. Paolo and Jill as well. Like they, they've got access to my life where they can go, hey, we see this. It shouldn't be a shock. It shouldn't be crazy. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes of all time, he says, do not be angry if someone thinks ill of you. For you are far worse than they can imagine. (laughs) They might think there's something wrong with you. You're worse. Imagine if they knew everything. Have you given someone that card and gone, hey, call me out when you see me wandering. Call me out when I don't show up two Sundays in a row. When I stop coming to gospel communities. Call me out in love, not out of a judgmental, self-righteous heart. But can you call me out? We've had people in our church community, they stop coming for a little while, and then you finally like, oh my gosh, it's been six months, where are they? And they're like, I was just going to see if anyone noticed. It's like, it's my five-year-old does, okay. <laughs> but if you're down to acknowledge you're in a spot as a five-year-old, that's fine. This is a community, it's a family. There are five-year-olds in families. Let's just know that. As, go, here's my card, I'm a five-year-old, and I like to play games. Please do it. We need to know that. We need to know and have that card to be able to call you out on your wandering. Please let us do that together. And the last question for the wanderers, the potential wanderer in us all is this. Do you know that Jesus came for wanderers? 
Do you know that? Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. One of the shadiest guys in the New Testament. One of the guys that actually looked more like Jafar from Aladdin. Tax collectors stealing money for the Roman Empire from the Jews, taking more than he should have, supporting an oppressive military regime that it would rape, murder, and crucify anyone who got in their way. He's taking money for it. And Jesus goes, hey, let's get dinner tonight. Your house. When Zacchaeus puts his faith in Jesus, Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus lays out his job description. He goes, here's why I'm here. Here's why I came from heaven to earth. It's to seek and save the lost, the wanderer. Friends, think about how kind that word lost is. There are. There are other descriptions of us in our unsaved state throughout the New Testament. Children of wrath. There's some crazy stuff in there. But lost? How gentle. I, we, I got lost on my way here this morning with, with GPS. I, I, I've got an awful sense of direction. I don't pay attention very well. It happens often. And I was lost. Without that GPS, I wouldn't be here right now. You'd be like, well, that guy. I'm mean, just in Temecula somewhere. <laughs> Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. You and I, in our wandering, in our lostness, God did not throw down a ladder and say, let's see who can make it. Let's see who can unlost themselves. Let's see who could find me, who could find the right path, and then they'll deserve to have me. He didn't do it. He said, they are lost, they're hopeless, they'll never be able to find their way back home, so I will pursue them. I will find them. I will search for them at a great cost to himself. Because his finding of us wasn't just going to be inconvenient. It was going to be his substitutionary death on the cross in our place. So much so that he had to be lost at the cross from his father. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer was he was lost on the cross so that you and I could be found. Because in our rebellion, in our rejection of him, he had to pay for that ultimate sin. And he said, I'm willing to do it for you because I've come to seek and save the lost. In Luke 15, he tells this parable of the, the, the lost sheep. I hope this doesn't grow dull to us. He says, who of you, if you had a hundred sheep and you lose one, wouldn't go seeking the one? I mean, I think it, the rhetorical question is like, I wouldn't. I mean, like, you're telling me I've got a hundred sheep. One of them goes away. I'm okay with 99. Like, I'm going to leave 99 sheep to a wolf and go try to find the one dumb one that got lost? Like, he'll learn. Like, that's his fault. But Jesus goes, no. He would go and chase the one. And when he finds the one, he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders And he runs back to town and says, we're partying tonight. Because the one sheep that was lost is now found. He says, it's going to be like that in heaven when any sinner repents and turns back to me. There will be rejoicing in heaven. Friends, do you understand this? That you and your lostness, when God finds you, he doesn't do this? Where have you been? Come with me, dummy. He finds you, he picks you up, he puts you on his shoulders, and he starts celebrating at a deep cost to himself. I mean, the party that he's going to throw probably costs more than the one lost sheep, right? He doesn't care because he gets his lost sheep back. You and I are the lost sheep that he rejoices over. He's excited about. And when you understand that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, everything changes. Who on earth is going to turn back to God when he's looking at you like this? No one. But when you and your wandering look back and see Jesus with his arms open going, where are you going? Come back here. You go back. You repent. You go, the sin is stupid compared to his 
grace and love. The sin is worthless compared to his grace and love. It is only when you see the smile of God that you will continually turn back to him in your potential wandering. Get rid of the horrid idea that he is angry and furious about your wandering. He is a loving father who is recklessly pursuing us in his grace. It's the only way you'll say yes to him. So we are wanderers, potentially, all the time. I need to be aware of this, but that isn't the only piece. James also speaks to the restorer in all of us. These are shorter, so you'll be okay. First question to the restorer in all of us is this. One, do you know that you are responsible for others? Do you know that? Do you get that? Biblically speaking, if you're a Christian, you're a part of this community, you are your brothers and sisters keepers. The guy and gal next to you aren't just strangers. They're people that you are responsible for as brothers and sisters in Christ. When the father adopts us into his family, we get new brothers and sisters. And we're responsible for them. We live in such an individualistic culture, friends. And if that creeps into the church, the church is dead. I saw this devastatingly take place in my own life a few years ago. It was another bachelor party. I promise I don't go to that many bachelor parties. I know, come on. Um, But I was at a bachelor party and... um, I mean, bringing a pastor on a bachelor party, I'm like, sure, I'll do it. But I don't want to ruin everybody's life. Um... So I'm on this bachelor party, and one of my friends, um, who's a Christian dude, loves Jesus. As the night kept going, he kept drinking. He, he was the bachelor. And I was, really, I was just like really frustrated with him. Because um, there were some shady dudes in, in, in the group that I knew weren't going to be good for him. Um, and they just kept buying him drinks. <clears throat> kept buying him drinks. And I'm sitting here. I had my one beer, sitting there, and he just keeps drinking. I'm like, what's he doing? Like, I mean, these dudes are non-Christians. He's like getting drunk, like just really over it and, and, and just bitter at him um, for not being more mature as I thought he was. And um, he ends up that night puking in the bathroom and <clears throat> I'm just like sitting in the hall, hotel room and everyone else is like laughing and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't go on bachelor parties anymore. I'm not fun. <clears throat> according to the world standards. And um, a few days later, uh, he comes to me. He says, hey, we need to talk. I was like, yeah, we do. And um, he's fighting back tears. He goes, dude, I'm so sorry. Um, I thought peer pressure would be gone by 30. It's not. And I, they just kept buying me drinks. And I, he's like, I don't want to play a victim card. I sinned against Jesus. I sinned against you. I sinned against all those guys. I sinned against my future wife. Um, I'm so sorry, dude. I just felt so helpless and enslaved as they just kept pushing drinks on me. I tried to say no, it didn't work, and I, I just wanted their approval more than anything else. I'm just so sorry. And in that moment, I feel the Holy Spirit say, Brad, you are as responsible for his sin as he is. It's like, what? Don't you put that on me, Lord. He's a sinner, not me. I was self-righteously judging in the other room. I did not sin, Lord. (laughs) And Jesus goes, you're as responsible for his sin as he is. Friends, I was playing the individualistic game. He is this entity over here, and I am this entity over here, and as long as no sin is getting into my little bubble, then everything's fine in the Christian kingdom. Jesus goes, no, he's your brother. Step in for him. Take responsibility for him. Step in. It's going to be awkward and go, he's done drinking, guys. No, that would be awkward for me. The same peer pressure he's struggling with, I'm struggling with, but it's just easier to distance myself. Jesus goes, it will not be that way in the kingdom. You will take responsibility for the sins of your brothers and sisters. Do you get that other brothers and sisters' sins is a moment of you to step in and help bring restoration? Paul says, when one brother or sister mourns, we all mourn. When one brother and sister rejoices, we all rejoice. Friends, how often is this disgusting reality in the church that some brother and sister is mourning, so we're rejoicing, and another is rejoicing, so we're mourning. 
and felt good self-righteously. He's sinning. I'm not. His issue. I can rejoice in my holiness here. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. You're part of the same body. It's like chopping your foot off and being like, at least my hand's okay. It's like, no, you should be crying right now. You should be doing everything you can to make sure that leg doesn't get cut off. Step in. Take responsibility for each other. Do we know what our goal is in this? Let him know. Excuse me. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brings them back. To what? Jesus. That's the goal of restoration. To bring them back to Jesus, not to win an argument. Not to shame them, not to guilt them, not to feel better about yourself, not to win them to your political party, not to win them to your ideological stance, not to win them to anything other than Jesus, not even to win them back to restored Temecula. Jesus. We, we want to win them back to him. That is our end goal in restoration. Be crystal clear about that when you go into hard conversations. I've had friends who have left our church over some difficult things sometimes and then other times just it just wasn't working with distance and other things. And as they leave our church and they go to plug into another Jesus-loving, gospel-centered church, there's a part of me that's like, offended? Friends, if they're going to faithfully follow Jesus at that church, praise him. The goal is Jesus, not restored LA, not restored Temecula, nothing other than Jesus. Let us be sure that we get that in our hearts. Let us be sure that even if someone else restores them back, that we can rejoice even if it wasn't us. Like, oh, I wish I had that conversation. No, just celebrate that they're back restored to Jesus. He is our goal. Two more questions. To the restorer in us all. Do you know what's at stake if you don't pursue a wanderer? Do you know what's at stake if you don't pursue a wanderer? Death. This is not like someone walks into a party and their outfit's mismatched and it's like, should I tell them or not? This is not like someone's got something in their teeth and you're like, this is awkward, maybe I won't. Death. Like, like, like your friend's about to step out onto the freeway and you're like, oh, I don't want to be awkward. I'll just be quiet. Like your friend's about to shoot up and you're like, well, he's like, that's his thing. Yeah, it's like, ooh. Death. This is what's at stake when you and I remain silent about sin. We need to take this very seriously. And the reward? Eternal life. I don't have a Bible verse for this. But there's something in me as I was studying it, this text that wants to believe that in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, those people that we have those hard conversations with that win them back to restore to Jesus, they'll be kind of like a wink in heaven every once in a while. Like, thanks, bud. Thanks for having that real awkward conversation. And we'll be like, all glory to Jesus because we're in heaven, yes. Um, but friends, eternal life. Like, like no one in heaven is going to be like, dude, I can't believe you called me out on that, man. Just was so awkward. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Thank you. When we were at Restored San Diego, I felt like God gave me a very clear word. He said, if you're going to be a leader in this church, you can never shy away from awkward conversations. You can't. I mean, again, family, right? Imagine, imagine my son. He grows up, he's 15, 16, and I'm in his bedroom. For whatever reason, I find like a bag of drugs. He's at school, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And we like get to the dinner table that night, and I'm like, well, this would be awkward, so I'm not going to talk about this. It'd be crazy. <laughs> Like, what an awful dad would I be if I'm like, how's everything going? 
They're good? Okay, cool, just checking. No, it's my job to step in because there's a lot on the table here. There's a lot at stake here. Let me press in through the awkwardness, through the difficulty. And go, not self-righteously, not judgmentally, but in love go, hey, are you doing okay? I saw this. I heard this. I feel this. What's going on? Not in a public setting. One-on-one. Together. Going, hey, I love you. I understand, man. I understand sin. Please tell me what's going on. If we don't have these conversations, we'll never be a healthy family. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. Let us push through the awkwardness and love people so much. Let us love people more than we love ourselves. Isn't that why we don't have conversations? We love ourselves more. Can we love people in response to the radical love of God? Love them and go, I'm going to have a hard talk with you whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a friend in your gospel community, whoever it is pressing through and going, I love you, you need to hear me say this. God has used men and women in my life over and over and over who have had those hard conversations. They've changed my life. They've changed my life. They were awful in the moment. In the moment, defensive Brad, attorney Brad comes out. I'm like, nope, not this, here's why. And I walk away. (laughs) And I walk away, I'm like, Of course they're right. They're right about everything they said. They were crying while they were talking. They weren't weren't excited to beat me up over this. Let me own it and repent over that. We have to understand what's at stake and the reward that is being offered to us. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. I think Ephesians 1 says that when we are put our faith in God, when he predestined us and adopted us into his family, all these things, the spirit of God seals us. I don't think you can lose your salvation, but please hear me say this. I don't know who's saved 100%, right? So so you don't either. Like, we can have good guesses. Like, that guy seems pretty clearly filled with the Spirit, loves Jesus, loves people. Yeah, I mean, there's there's very clear evidence and fruit that should be clear. But but you don't know. So let's press in and push and go, hey, where there's unrepentant sin, you have no guarantee that they're a Christian. In fact, unrepentant sin is like evidence of a non-Christian. Sin, everyone sins. Christian, non-Christian. Unrepentant, going, I'm sinning and I do what I want. That is a mark of a non-Christian. So it is in those that we go, I see this, I love you, can we chat about this? Because you're claiming allegiance to King Jesus, but your life looks very different. Push through. And the last question is this. Do you know that you are not alone in your restoring. Who is the great restorer? Jesus. You may feel like there is a weight on your shoulders as you go through these conversations, but the greatest news in the world is you're not alone. There's someone who loves that person far more than you do. As someone who loves more deeply, more carefully, knows them more than you do, his name is Jesus. He's the great restorer. How much you believe that will be a clear indication of your prayer life. If you think you're the ultimate restorer, you don't pray. Because you've gotten it down to tactics and techniques of how to have persuasive conversations. But if you understand that Jesus is the great restorer, you spend far more time praying than you do thinking about how you're going to have the conversation. Friends, I can't tell you the joy it is that several times in my life I've seen brothers and sisters in sin and I know I have to confront them. In love and in grace... And the Spirit of God reminds me, pray for them. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. God, would you, would you, would you change them? Would, would this change? Friends, when, when someone repents before you have to call them out, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's the greatest thing. Because guess what? It wasn't forced. It wasn't manipulated. It wasn't like they felt guilty from me. They felt conviction from the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God lifted their eyes to see Jesus and his grace and his mercy and love and they said, I can be outed for this sin. I can be honest about my struggles. So I'm sorry. Let us be prayerful people going, Jesus, please, I see this, I see this, I see this. Will you please help them in this? Will you please cause repentance here? Will you please do this here? Pray for a bit. Nothing works. You're called to restore called to step in and have those hard conversations. But don't you dare have those conversations without praying, asking the great restorer to go before you 
in his work that he does far better than you and I. Can you fathom what this church family would look like if this is what we lived? The humility of every believer knowing that I'm prone to wander. So no, there's no arrogance in the room. There's no like the wanderers and restore. There's none of that because everyone is humbly aware that they pinned Jesus to the cross. They're going, yeah, it could be me tomorrow. But the boldness and the love because of what we've seen and experienced through Jesus, we're willing to have really awkward and difficult conversations for the benefit of others. It's what the world's dying for, friends. It's what the world is dying to experience and see happen. Would we be filled with his spirit so that we can enjoy him and bring his kingdom here to Temecula as it is in heaven? Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that when we were wandering lost sheep, you didn't just expect us to find our way home. You came after us. And when you found us, you saved us. You rejoiced over us. You bought and purchased everything we need. We praise you. We thank you that now you invite us to partner with you. That as restored sheep, we get to go and help restore other sheep. What a privilege it is to be partners with you in your kingdom. Would you kill our fear of man? you kill that desire of approval from others that's in our hearts so strong at times it feels like it's stronger than you would you pour out your love into our hearts Holy Spirit so that we could pour out love on others so we could get over ourselves we could stop loving ourselves more than we love you and love others become the safest community around. Safe because people aren't arrogant and judgmental and safe because they're not going to let us die and wander away from the truth. We love you. Thank you for all that you've done.